0: Well, I look forward to both of your deaths. No, wait, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I look forward dying. Yeah,
1: dying. <laughs> to
0: dying with you. No, wait, that's not what I meant either.
1: I'm smiling for all the listeners <laughs> as she's saying this. Good, good dying jokes.
2: Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society.
0: Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting.
2: I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan.
0: And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script?
2: All right, Devin, I got a question for you. Okay. Have you ever thought about your own death and what it's going to look like?
0: Oh, you know, I don't spend a ton of time thinking about that. I I will say I am One of those people who imagines the worst possible scenario all the time. Like if I'm at the top of a very steep staircase, I think, gosh, what if I were to slip and to fall all the way down this staircase and die? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm very clumsy and so I think all the time about like oh gosh this could be the thing that kills me but not in a like a positive way like not never in a <laughs> what would be my ideal kind of dying process I mean I think like most people the idea of dying at home surrounded by my loved ones that seems ideal and actually the more people I know that have died The more i think a quick death would be a bad thing because there's so much that can happen at the end of your life so many good conversations that could be had um, so much time to sort of ponder and ask for forgiveness or tell people that you love them i think that's a really lovely space so i would hope that i would have the time for that i hope of course that i get all of that out of the way before I'm dying. But I do think the more I'm with people who are dying, the more possibility I see in positive things that can come from that experience. But I don't know. How about you? Do you imagine your death quite often?
2: Uh, I don't Im- like imagine it, I guess. Um, <laughs> I do think about you know, what would be the best way to go. Like you were talking about, like I, you know, sometimes I'm driving down the highway or whatever. I'm like, I wonder what would happen, you know, what would it be like if that semi-truck just, you know, didn't see me and drove me off the road, like plowed into me. But then I think about, you know, would it be better to die, you know, like a clap of thunder type of uh, aneurysm or something like that, where it's just, you know, all of a sudden you're you're here one moment and gone the next. I don't know. I I see a lot of, uh, there's an appeal to that, right? But also I think that there's a lot of, you can miss out on Like you said, kind of the last things, one of my favorite quotes about, about end of life dying was, is actually from Keanu Reeves.
0: (laughs) Go on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Go on. I don't remember what show he was on, but some late night show maybe been Colbert or Letterman or something, but they ask, you know, he's quite philosophical, at least he presents himself as being quite philosophical and a really, I don't know, nice guy. Seems like lots of people like him, but he was asked the question, what happens after you die? And he kind of sat there for a second and it looked like he was thinking and he said the people who love us will be sad Hmm. and i was like oh that's that's about all that i can be confident in as well
0: yeah i've been watching this great show um midnight mass have you seen this
2: no i haven't seen it yet
0: well i really enjoyed it because it's both like a horror show although it's not terribly scary because i get very I'm I just don't like horror as a genre not because it's not great but because I get it gets so impressed upon me and I can't sleep and so generally horror like really messes me up but this show is like this perfect combination of kind of a horror genre with this like religious sentiment and one of the things that this show does really well is there are a couple of characters who talk about what happens after you die quite a bit and they go they go on these like really lovely soliloquies about death and they actually change throughout the show. So I won't spoil anything. So my husband and I then had these conversations because he'd he'd look over at me and he'd go, how do you feel about that? Because they're kind of theological too. So he's like, how did you feel? Did that make you mad? Did you like the way that they just described death? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just saw it. I have to have time to process. But we'll at the end of the podcast, if you stay until the very end, we'll we'll just tell you, right, what happens. Um, but I want to save that until the end of the episode. <laughs>
2: You're going to divulge what afterlife looks like,
0: right? Right. Yeah.
2: Oh, good. I'm glad that somebody knows.
0: <laughs> good. Well, so today we're going to talk to Harold Braswell, who has spent a lot of time thinking about death um, in the context of hospice, because this is where, in our at least in our healthcare system, we place death. Of course, most people will not die using the hospice service, but it is you know the sort of space in medicine where we really do think about what a good death would look like and how to care for people as they're dying and all the ways in which that can be lovely but also the ways in which of course because it's embedded in a bureaucratic system can go awry and can reflect all sorts of bad parts about our society as well
2: yeah Harold is one of the most interesting folks that I know in bioethics but also his area of specialization this hospice dying particularly when you overlay disability and race it's just really an interesting area of, of expertise that he has so It's going to be a great conversation, I think. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We're so excited to have Professor Harold Braswell, Associate Professor of Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis University and the author of the new book entitled The
1: Crisis of U.S. Hospice Care. Harold, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Tyler and Evan. It's awesome to be here.
0: So Harold, you wrote a book on it, but the first thing I want to ask you, because I think some people get confused about what exactly hospice even is. Can you just tell us a little bit about what hospice is and how it functions, particularly in our American context?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say that the American context is important, that hospice is not the same thing in every country, even countries like America, Canada, and England that you would think... It means something, it doesn't mean something relatively similar, but there are extremely important differences. So in America, hospice is a form of health care for people who are dying. Okay, that's basically what hospice is. And I use the term healthcare deliberately, in that it includes medicine, but also includes a number of other things. It's not just medical care. And for people who are dying, uh, that means something very specific in this context. That means people, the way we define dying in this country is someone who has a condition that carries a prognosis of six months or less to live. So it's a form of health care for people who have a prognosis of six months or less to live and have given up curative interventions. This is another extremely important, relatively controversial in the literature, probably, probably should be a much more controversial aspect of our American form of hospice care, that in order to qualify for hospice, you need to say, I am not doing chemotherapy. I'm not doing anything that is going to attempt to cure this condition, I have essentially said I am dying and I accept that. So that is what hospice is in America.
0: Yeah, and Harold, I think what also makes it confusing is that there are all sorts of palliative care treatments that can be done in hospice that are for the purposes of relieving pain, which look a- awful a lot sometimes like curative medicine. Every now and again, somebody will re- be receiving palliative chemotherapy. And I think, gosh, that sounds a lot like curative medicine, which supposedly they've given up. But every now and again, chemotherapy actually helps relieve pain. I, I can't imagine this is super common, but what are your experiences with the, those kinds of palliative treatments, too?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that, at least when I was doing research, what you're talking about was not, as you put it, super common. That would not be the normal hospice patient. However, you know, palliative surgery is an extremely important subfield of surgery and palliative chemotherapy. And I mean, I guess what I would say is that there can be confusion on that end. And there's also confusion on the other end is that hospice precedes palliative care. Okay. Palliative care comes out of hospice historically, though both kind of originate with the same person, which would be Cicely Saunders in the United Kingdom. But palliative care has in a way, come to kind of swallow up hospice. And in some sense, that's understandable because palliative care is, you don't need to be dying for palliative care. It's throughout the lifespan. So you see more talk of palliative care. Uh, You see that word used a lot more. And I think for for understandable, but in my mind, in some sense, not ideal reasons, a lot more talk about palliative care and a lot less talk about hospice these days. And so I, I think some confusion is not just, uh, some confusion is appropriate because we're in a confused moment in how we think about hospice and, and what, what it should be, how it relates to other types of healthcare and how it relates to life, for lack of a better word. And so I think to, to be confused is very understandable.
2: In the definition that you provided being less than six months to live and also given up curative care, I mean, how do people know that they're within six months of life? That seems like a really difficult thing to, to nail down
1: well it is uh, I mean it's a definition that comes from policymakers okay and this is you know my book it's an interdisciplinary book but it has a lot of history my dissertation advisor is a historian of medicine that's one of the fields I was trained in and a big part of this history is the history of what's called the Medicare hospice benefit so hospice in America is paid for by Medicare which on the one hand is amazing because we we have like, public end-of-life care in this country, and this is not talked about nearly often enough in in my mind, that there's essentially a single-payer model of -of end-of-life care through Medicare, is an incredible story, that this happened during the Reagan administration, which is not a time known for sweeping public programs that would help people out, is another incredible part of this story. But part of the story as well is that, well, if you want a public program, then it's ultimately politicians and policymakers who decide on the eligibility uh, criteria of that program. Now, of course, they'll talk to doctors and people like that, but their goals are not the same of that of a clinician. They also are concerned about, well, money. Um, They're concerned about people getting too many services in one way or another. And so the six-month prognosis comes from that concern. It's a way of, of limiting who can access this. The six months plus the no cure at it, okay, are, are ways of of doing that. And one problem is what you've talked about. You could predict when somebody's going to die in a couple days. A couple months is very hard. And the way they do predict it is that doctors have a variety of tests: tests for pain, t- tests for debility, tests like BMI would be a test that they use, combining together to say, okay, it, it looks like this person is dying and is therefore hospice eligible. So it's not an exact thing that I could like poke your skin, get a drop of blood and be like, yep, dying, like that's it, six months. <laughs> it, it's like a probabilistic measure, which creates a lot of problems, right? Because what what happens when someone lives more than six months, for example, uh, and they're in hospice, and sometimes wildly more than six months. Uh, when somebody has been on hospice for eight months and you have to kick them off it because you're worried that the government is going to accuse you of defrauding them, um, that's a problem. So that, that in terms of the difficulty of estimating uh, six months probability. I I do want to say one other thing. Okay, well, why, why don't I ask you all a question? What's the average length of time on hospice in this country? If you had to guess, with the six months prognosis, what would you guess is the average length of time that a person spends on hospice?
0: Well, you're asking the wrong people because we do both work in healthcare. But I think it's something like <laughs> like two days. Is that I, like- I
1: think twelve days? 12 or so, days. I, at least it was last time I checked. But yeah. wildly less than six months. Yeah. Yeah. And you know. There are complicated reasons why that's the case, but one of the reasons is the the no curative care requirement, that people, you know, they want to be cured. It's reasonable, by the way, in my mind, to want to be cured. But as a result of that, we have a situation where, uh, on the one hand, if if you get on hospice too soon, then your hospice is going to get dinged very seriously for that. So there's a kind of fear of enrolling people too soon. On the other hand, most people, the vast majority, get on hospice far too late. 12 days, it's far too late for the benefits of hospice, which can be very significant to be reaped. So that's a, that's a tragedy of our hospice system as well.
0: And Harold, what would you say some of those are? So, you know, I'm thinking if I didn't work in healthcare and didn't have any interaction with this. And actually as somebody who works in tertiary hospitals, I don't have a ton of interaction with hospice because not many hospitals have like a hospice wing. Most hospice is done at home. And so uh, most physicians, unless they work particularly in hospice won't have a lot of interactions with hospice care. So what are the benefits of hospice? If you're dying and we're not trying to cure you, what are we doing?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think that this might surprise you from a guy who wrote a book with the title The Crisis of US Hospice Care, but I, I think that hospice, the hospice benefit in this country is in some ways an ideal of what American healthcare could be and should look like. And that it's a story that other forms of care throughout the lifespan should aspire to. Because what hospice is, is it's one of my favorite words is interdisciplinary, interprofessional might be a better term. It's a interprofessional form of care. So, when you get on hospice, you're getting a doctor. You're getting, you know, probably multiple nurses. You're getting a social worker. You're getting hopefully a nutritionist and in a lot of places a nutritionist. You're getting a chaplain. Okay, there is a team of people who will give you care that's for the most part paid for by the US government. That you don't pay anything for this and it and they work together and they work together for a living. So these kind of problems of interprofessional coordination, which can be probably a lot messier in the hospital context are here, it's like they're spending every day together working and it can be a fine-tuned machine, I guess, caring for the individual who's dying and also their family uh, as well. And I would say that that's another huge benefit, kind of from a health policy design, that hospice is something that it's a form of care that has built into it the understanding that we're, we're social beings and that... Part of what, when you're dying, you're suffering from is not just your own pain and suffering, but your concern for your family members and your loved ones and your desire for them to be cared for as well. And to see that happening while you're dying is something that can be immensely gratifying. So it's all of this combined together, delivered right to your door in a manner that's convenient for you. And that sees you as a whole person. Okay, that yes, sees you as someone whom who has a medical condition that's very serious, and you're going to get treatment for that. Now, pain medicine, pain management, uh, et cetera, would be a big part of the medical component of hospice. But that you're also someone who has psychological fears about dying, that is in a position perhaps of social marginalization, that severely restricts whatever benefits you could have from dying in terms of, well, I'll talk about those benefits in a second, and that you're you're a kind of spiritual person, that you have theological, existential concerns that are provoked by dying. And all of this is seen together. I don't want to ramble on, but just one more thing I want to say in terms of the benefits. And I actually had a personal experience that weirdly concretized me, this for me. I, I've been very skeptical of this. Cicely Saunders, who I've talked about, she wrote about terminal illness as a, a bringing con- together condition, specifically cancer. And the idea of that would be oftentimes in, a, in, in your life, you have fights with people in your family and there are very serious rifts in the family. And that part of one of the benefits of hospice would be is that when someone's dying, it's a time that could put things in perspective for that individual and for everyone around them. And it could help bring together families that might have had very serious rifts to care for this person who is now in a sense radically different because they're dying. And that hospice should facilitate this. It should provide a kind of guy like Donald Winnicott would call holding environment so that the family can come together around this person. And there could be real individual growth for the dying person who's anguished perhaps about their familiar relations and for the people who are going to be left afterwards, that it could bring together the family and move them to a place beyond grief eventually. And I think that's one of the most poignant and powerful goals that I could think of for not just healthcare, but for a society To give people a way of dealing with loss as individuals and as a community, that they could grow from it, is for me a reasonable goal for a society to have. And hospice really can work to accomplish that. Such an ideal picture that you're painting about
2: this type of care. What kind of concerns or why is there hesitation or resistance to people going on
1: the hospice? People don't want to be dying. Some people want to be dead. Some people want to be alive. No one wants to be dying. That's a state that, you know, to Devin's point earlier, we lack positive adjectives that can easily be applied to dying. And I think, by the way, we should lack positive adjectives that could be easily applied to dying because the benefits of dying are are challenging, even conceptually, for us to think of. But they can also be very rewarding, but they're not very well known. You know, dying as it's represented in popular culture as we think about it, if we think about it, is the worst thing that could happen to you, essentially is to be dying. And for that reason, people don't want to confront it and neither neither do policymakers uh, for the most part. So you know, we, we, we have moments, right? Like we had this moment in 1982 and 1983 where there wasn't really a national conversation about hospice, but at least people in Washington were like, yeah, 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 we should we should take care of this. Now, They were concerned about dying people. They were also concerned about saving Medicare money. And unfortunately, that that is a big part of the story about how dying becomes an issue of national prominence when it gets, quote, too expensive and people start freaking out about it. But that's not very good. But it's a very unpalatable thing to think about. And so individuals put it off. As families, we put off talking about it. And as a society, we don't engage in collective end-of-life planning in the realm of policy, in a structured manner. We have crises every once in a while where we kind of try to pull things together to respond to them, but it's hard to think about, and so we don't. And that has, in my mind, had very catastrophic policy implications in terms of our end-of-life care systems design.
0: Right, so Harold, you call our hospice system in a crisis, right? That's the title of your book. So, you know, you have painted this kind of rosy picture of what it could be, and then explained some of the reasons why policy-wise things could be better. But what do you see as this crisis that we're in right now when we think about hospice care?
1: Well, So hospice includes all of these great things that I've told you about, okay? It includes an interprofessional care team delivered to your door. But dying people need more than excellent medical care, nursing care, nutrition, psychosocial care and spiritual or religious, you know, care if you want to call it that. They also they experience difficulties in what are called activities of daily living. So these are basic matters of daily functioning, cleaning, bathing, routine hygiene, etc. And hospice does not include that. The benefit does not include that. And so well, okay, so dying people need this, but it's not part of the benefit. So how do they get it? Well, the idea originally was that their family members would take care of all of these aspects of hospice. And this was an idea I wanna say that hospice proponents believed in and that also policymakers believed in. Now they had somewhat different reasons for, for wanting this to be true. The people who created hospice in my mind had a admirable but somewhat romantic view of what family caregiving for a dying person was and, and, and somewhat idealized view. In part because of what I was talking about, the bringing together illness thing, right? That part of the way that families would come together was by caring for, like doing the physical care of caring for a dying person. So they thought there would be clinical benefits of this. So hospice does not include long-term care. Well, guess what? Long-term care is very expensive. So if you're you're creating this hospice system because you're worried about Medicare spending too much money, Medicare doesn't pay for long-term care. Medicaid does for the most part in this country. And if you include that in hospice, if you included that in Medicare, well, then Medicare is going to go bankrupt a lot sooner as a result of that. So there is a concern about cost that's not included. So as a result of this, the burden, which is a loaded word, but there is a significant caregiving burden. It's hard to care for a dying person. These are literally the sickest people in our healthcare system. Falls to people who have often no medical training, who might be disabled themselves, if you think of an elderly couple right? One person is dying. The other person likely has disabilities that would impede their ability to provide care. Might need to work a job. Probably has a lot of things that impede their ability to provide the necessary level of care, yet it falls to them. And far too often, they can't do it. They can't provide their loved ones with the level of care that's necessary. It's an unreasonable thing to ask them to do. And when you don't have sufficient long-term care in hospice, all of those other benefits that I told you about, pretty much don't work. They don't work nearly as well. And one of the main benefits would be that you could stay at home. And well, you could stay at home, in which case you're getting neglected in the situation I'm described, or you go to a nursing home. So that's actually what's happened is that people have got, this is something that was never intended by the people who created hospice, who deeply hated nursing homes for the most part and actually saw them as their enemies. And in point of fact, nursing home lobbies in Connecticut really obstructed the development of hospice in this country but actually we have a hospice system that because it doesn't provide long-term care has come to become dependent on our country's nursing home system which is not a good place for people who are dying at all and so that's that's the crisis is that you have a hospice system dependent on a degree of familial caregiving that just doesn't exist and this creates problems for dying people for family members and for healthcare workers as well who often really want to do the right thing, but they're extremely constrained in what they can do. This is kind of a morbid topic, Harold.
2: I mean, confronting death and thinking about ways of dying. And I often get accused of having a, a pretty dark job that nobody wants to uh, talk about at a cocktail party. How did you get interested in this?
1: That's a really interesting question. Uh, I mean, I think that I got interested in it I think that my my engagement with it is a lot richer and a lot less morbid, frankly, than when I got interested in it, that that I've grown with this topic, studying it, as we all do with the topics we study. There's a lot in this topic that I didn't see at first, but how I got interested in it is uh, my mom was deaf. She she had a difficult life because basically deaf people were, in my mind, broadly hated when she grew up in this country, unfortunately. And uh, so I I I grew up with a kind of disability rights consciousness. Now no one in my family was political at all. I don't I don't think they even knew the ADA had happened, frankly. But there was like a strong like disabled people are not cared for, you know, quote unquote oppressed, if if you want to. Now after I graduated college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I, I started reading in the field of disability studies. There were no disability studies courses in my college uh, when I graduated in 2003. God bless the progress we've made in disability studies in the last, you know, it's, it's enormous. I, it would be unthinkable to have, you know, my university without disability studies now, but it just, no one knew it was there. So it wasn't until I graduated college that I found it. And it was this academic field that seemed to speak very closely to something that was very personal to me, which was being angry about how my mom had been treated. And around this time, this movie Million Dollar Baby came out. And this was a movie that there was this whole debate about the ethics of spoiling movies, but no one remembers this movie in spite of it winning multiple Academy Awards now, um, which is refreshing, right? Because I was really concerned with that at the time, but like literally five years later, no one knows what you're talking about. It's about euthanasia. And I was reading disability studies stuff and there was euthanasia was a big public topic. And I came in touch with the disability rights critique of euthanasia or what's nowadays could be called aid in dying or assisted suicide. And it was a very shocking critique to me because it was a critique that did not tack onto what we call the culture wars in this country. It was not a pro-choice or pro-life critique. It was a critique of euthanasia from these people who would be secular leftists, which is how I defined myself. I got really fascinated in this topic and the disability rights critique of uh, euthanasia. And I went to grad school to study that at Emory. Now, the disability rights critique of euthanasia is not really focused around dying people. It's focused around people with long-term disabilities. Uh, And basically a big part of it is like, don't offer aid in dying or assisted suicide to disabled people. The issue was, is that in America, aid in dying or assisted suicide is not really offered to disabled people. And there there wasn't really any work done or much work done in disability studies about can a disability rights framework apply to dying people? Essentially, are dying people disabled? Should we view them as disabled? And that's how I got into dying. I got into dying through disability rights and through what, you know, we call a gap in the literature. There was a gap. How Do, do we apply a disability rights framework to dying people or are they totally different? And that's how I got into this. That's how I got interested in dying. Now, as I said, it's an interest that's grown a lot and is that's not how I would describe my interest in dying now, but that's how I got into it.
0: That's really interesting. And Harold, I know that you've been doing some work more recently, thinking about the ways in which not only ableism and disability rights intersects with this conversation about people who are dying in hospice, but also the way that race intersects. So I would imagine, and you can sort of flesh this out, but if most of the caretaking is done at home, that the kinds of injustices that's happening along the lines of race and housing and care that that's going to have a big impact on how people experience dying in the home, even with a hospice benefit. So are there racial tensions that can happen as well when we think about hospice care?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there are are all sorts of racial tensions that can happen in the home context. And really, I mean, I'm, I, I am working on this, you're right, and, and I have very interesting anecdotes that I'm trying to kind of make sense of and situate. But I would just say more broadly to situate this conversation about these anecdotes, hospice and I would say the conversation around, quote unquote, death and dying as a, as a discrete category of, of care. You know, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. People who, who did a lot, a lot of admirable work in my mind to, to bring the, the idea of dying as a topic worthy of study and worthy of healthcare reform were largely white people in the 1970s. And in hospice in particular, you have our hospice system, the very structure of hospice before it became our hospice system was designed by a group of people in New Haven, Connecticut, working at Yale University. And these are people who I would describe as politically very liberal, certainly very sympathetic to the civil rights movement, but that they built the hospice benefit that was really designed to work in the middle-class white suburbs of New Haven, which is in fact where our country's first hospice, Hospice Inc., originated. And you know what I've learned from studying this is that foundational stones are not damning forever. They can change. You can change the foundation of something. But... If, you, if the foundation of your hospice system is middle-class white people in the suburbs, it becomes very hard to change that the bigger that system gets. It's almost unfortunate, right? Because every success, in a sense, can make it, make it harder to see this element of it. So hospice in America, since it became part of, of Medicare, has grown exponentially. It's a billion-dollar industry. And yet African-Americans use hospice less than any other racial group. And, and it's actually proven harder to get Black people to enroll in hospice, that they're, they're undercover. And also, I would say that, to, to your point about housing discrimination, it's a home-based hospice benefit in a country with ubiquitous anti-Black housing discrimination. And that's what I'm studying right now. You know, to what degree is this responsible for the underutilization of hospice services by African Americans? And to what degree does it impede the ability of hospice to operate successfully? And I would say that it's pretty significant. Uh, You're talking about a home-based care system. If your home is very small, if it's overcrowded, if it's an area where you don't have ready access to food, an area where you might be concerned about violence, an area that lacks ready access to healthcare in general, that maybe hospice providers are reluctant to, to visit at night or in general, then you might be in a lot more pain when you're dying as a result of that. And you might not get the beautiful whole person-focused care that I described to you. And I think there are very significant racial differences in this regard.
0: Well, Harold, is there a a solution? We're a podcast about solving all of the healthcare problems. Just kidding. We're not. Um, But Are we? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I don't think we've solved anything yet. We're more just bringing things to the fore. But is there anything, I mean, that we absolutely have to know about hospice or any anything that really could improve kind of the situation that we're in so we can get closer to a vision of hospice that really you know helps people die well in our country
1: yeah, I'll say I'll give you one really easy solution and, and then and then you could cut me off after that, after I go into the more like kind of winding, complex, you know, in my mind, visionary, but, but, but difficult. <laughs> you no, know, I, I think that one, one simple fix, and it's not just me, it's, it's everyone who writes about, for example, racial disparities in hospice care or the underutilization of hospice in general, the 12-day average that I was talking about, is that, man, it'd be great if we didn't peg hospice to um, the absence of curative care in this way people would get on hospice earlier, african americans would use hospice a lot more. A, a lot of black people do not want to give up curative interventions for in my mind very reasonable reasons given this country's racial history. and so as a result of that 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 is a big factor and so it's it's a it's a quick fix that would improve things in in a lot of ways. now that said I think there would be a lot of other things to improve, and it's, it's everything from you know long-term care and hospice to the design of our country's housing system, especially I've been working on race and hospice, questions of reparations for historical and contemporary injustices. It can get a very big discussion, and it should be in my mind. But I actually think that one thing that I think hospice has to offer is that I think that dying is a good space for these kind of discussions about what what we want to be as a country and as a healthcare system, about how we relate to one another at a time when we need help, and what our goals are as a country. And I I think that this is, unfortunately, far too absent in our public discussions of policy, Uh, what I would say a hospice perspective, by which I mean, not the kind of narrow-tailored description of hospice I gave at the beginning of our talk, which is like six months, doesn't include curative care, but rather just a focus that is like, okay, what does it mean to think of ourselves as people who not will die, but will be dying? That we will be in the situation, what do we want for our loved ones? What do we want for them then? What do we want for ourselves then? And what do we want afterwards? I found that those are the best conversations I have and that you would be surprised what people say in conversations like that. Someone that comes in the door, that you know, me stereotyping person. Sometimes I'll just be like, "Oh yeah, this guy is like, he's he's this kind of person. He's going to give me these kind of perspectives on this issue." And then you talk to them about an experience they've had with dying in long-term care, and et cetera. A lot of stuff comes up that you could work with them, and you could create really cool connections when you when you inhabit the space. So you know, Tyler, this is a defense of you and myself. The very morbid people. I don't think that we're that morbid, actually. You know, I think that you get involved in dying. Maybe you start working on dying because you see a gap in the literature that, damn, you just want to write a dissertation and get a job, so you try to fill it. But you don't stay with it for 10 years unless you see a lot of possibility and unless you experience some very moving things on a personal level. And so I would just I would just say if us individually and us, I guess, as a country and as a world could open us more to this space, I, I think that A lot of these like logistical things can get worked out a lot more easily if we expose ourselves to dying.
2: Just one final question for you, Harold, and what you said really resonates with with my experience in in working with people towards the end of their lives, is that it seems like for generations that dying, like you said, happened in the home and everyone was aware of it and uh, comfortable with it. But... At some point, we got away from that, and I don't know if it's the medicalization or the institutionalization or what, whatever it may be. But I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are of how did we lose touch with the dying process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that medicalization and institutionalization are you know two two different historical moments. But I do think that you know the rise of medical authority in the mid nineteenth to late twentieth century it allowed a lot of people to not be dying anymore and that's a big part of why medicine got so much authority right because you had people that they used to just get this thing and then they would die uh and it was kind of like well that and children right and that's what happens and and all of a sudden they they weren't dying anymore so a lot of the authority of medicine to this day is built in opposition to people dying and part of that means removing people from the home because you know Hospitals do exist for a reason that you need to pool the resources of professionals in this one area and a lot of technology that can be very expensive. And so that does remove dying from the home. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of benefits to this. And I I would not want to go back. And I don't think that we should idealize, for example, America in the mid 19th century prior to the rise of medical authority as this kind of like awesome place that we should want to go back to but i do think that this separation of dying from daily life has had negative consequences for dying people and i think for everyone because long before we're dying we have fantasies about dying and thoughts about dying that that impact how we live our daily life and fears about dying that impact how we think of ourselves what we do about it and as dying gets further and further away in my mind these fears a bit magnify it actually in some sense doesn't occupy a smaller place in our lives it occupies like a kind of enormous place psychically in our lives. And that's that's not a good thing either. You know, if you grow up and, you know, it's normal that everyone you know had a dying grandparent in their house growing up and that this is a thing you see, in a way your fears of dying, you're able to engage them more. And I think that that's, that's a beneficial thing that we've lost. And I do think that it, how to get back that aspect of engagement with dying is complicated, but I think it's feasible and it's something we could look forward to.
0: Good, Harold. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We'll put a link to your book on our website and many, many other good articles that you've written on this topic. So we thank you so much for being here with us today and talking about dying.
1: Thank you both so much. This has been great.
0: For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here.